SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. Welcome back to the Conference USA Podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for the Group of Five and the FCS. Joe Lonergan and Eric Henry here with you as always, ready to break down some uh, surprising results in CUSA from this past weekend. We got a little bit of news uh, from the league to get to as well later on. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a fun show here. Um, no guests this week. I know we've been doing that for most of this league um, or most of this year, rather, but uh, not going to happen this week. So you're just stuck with uh, our two dulcet tones. And Eric, I'm sure they'll, uh, there'll be some folks disappointed by that, but they'll get over it. Joe, what is going on, my man? It is crazy that is week 10. It's wild because you've been saying that over the past few weeks about is how the football season's flown by. And and I guess between, you know, Tuesday pressers and catching flights and whatnot, it, it didn't really sink in until I looked up and I'm it really was the Halloween because, you know, how it goes Halloween into Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving into Christmas. I looked up and I'm like, man, this year is done. But yeah, um, I, I think the fans will be all right. In fact, we don't have a guest. I mean, in the effort of full disclosure, we're going to be talking FIU. So I do think you know, I'm, I'm a sufficient enough guest in that regard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think you've <laughs> I think you've built up a satisfactory resume on that regard so far. <laughs> being, you know, one of the only people on that beat in the last ten years or whatever. Um, but right. <laughs> what'd you say? Is it about right? About right. Yeah. We're also going to talk about some um, preemptive postseason awards. We haven't really done like a midseason as life goes. We didn't really get to do a proper midseason award. So right now we're just going to give our picks for who would win uh, some of the CUSA postseason awards if the season ended today. But we'll get to that uh, more towards the middle of the show. For now, let's dive into the Friday night result from this past weekend. And that, of course, was FIU beating Louisiana Tech 42 to 34 in double overtime. Another huge day for Grayson James, 31 of 48 for 321 yards and three touchdowns. Uh, fantastic composure by the sophomore quarter, uh, sophomore quarterback, as well as this entire team, really. And I couldn't tell you the last time that FIU won, you know, consecutive games, let alone consecutive conference games. So, you know, Eric, now at four and four, FIU are becoming something of a national headline for how much they've improved and having a real chance at bowl eligibility in Mike McIntyre's first season here. I would have to think about it as far as the last time was consecutive conference wins. Uh, I'd have to think about that one, probably 2018. I don't believe that happened in 2019. But the last time they beat a conference opponent at home was Old Dominion in 2019. As you kind of talked about, uh, really starting to get some national headlines as far as the Panthers in terms of the fact that they're four and four. And normally that wouldn't be something to ride home about, Joe. But I think... A, in conjunction with what the national expectations were for this team, I want to say the over-under was set at two and a half wins heading into this year by Vegas. I had him at four and eight. And I think just kind of the, I don't want to say um, scare, because that's not the word I'm looking for, but there was uh, a lot of, I, maybe just surprise when people saw the Western Kentucky score, right? And I think, you know, especially a team like FIU and Conference USA, you don't really get a lot of national headlines unless it's something that's crazy good or crazy bad. So the lasting image in people's minds of FIU football, so 73-0 loss at Western Kentucky, of course, that was a game that was on nationally te- nationally televised on CBS Sports Network. So the fact that the Panthers have an opportunity to redeem themselves on CBS Sports Network being Louisiana Tech, Joe, um, you know, just does a great job for the program and Mike McIntyre quickly in this game. 
Tech goes up 10-0. Then FIU responds. Uh, Grayson James throws, excuse me, Grayson James throws a 34-yard TD pass to Chris Mitchell. I know he's a guy that you've had your eye on for the past few weeks. And Grayson, I'm going to spotlight this TD here a little bit, Joe, because it, it was really unique to watch from our vantage point in the FIU press box, they were coming our direction, which of course, if anyone's familiar with FIU stadium, the press box is at one end of the end zone, right? So when they're coming your direction, you get a really, really good view of the formation. You had a chance to see it was a cover one, uh, you know, single high look um, from Louisiana tech. And you got a chance to see Grayson really kind of give that nonverbal communication with Chris Mitchell. Like, all right, we got what we're looking for. Grayson shifted the safety with his eyes and just hit Chris Mitchell over the top. Asked him about it post game. And he pretty much ran it down just like that saying, Hey, you know, I'm feeling uh, from uh, the start of the season to now I'm just feeling really, you know, more comfortable, more mature. And Mike McIntyre mentioned it as well, as far as his confidence in, in, in carrying over, what he's doing in practice to the games and then believing his eyes and believing what he's seen. So that was really all kind of summed up on that TD play. Tech goes up 17-7 with the Marquis Crosby 29-yard TD and has a chance to go up, I want to say, uh, uh, either 24-7 or maybe they're in field goal range, but they were on FIU territory. Uh, the Panthers get a huge third down sack from Jordan Garrod, a, a kind of a rising defensive tackle making some plays for the team. And then from there, they they come back and score. Uh, you know, they get the 16-yard TD pass, James Jalen Bracey, Followed up in, you know, what, like 30-something seconds of gameplay, Tyrese Chambers on, on Joe. I don't know if you had a chance to see it. Before I, I, I go on the rest of this game, did you have a chance to see, because I got to shout out the special teams, uh, Ricky Brumfeld, special teams coach at FIU. Did you have a chance to see the designed onside squib kick that FIU recovered? I did. Yeah. I mean, it seems like all across the league, there was a lot of good special teams plays this weekend, but that one definitely sticks out. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I mean, for those who hadn't seen it, it, it was actually something that was designed. So Mike McIntyre talked about it post-game that the way Smoke Harris was playing returns, he was kind of playing them a, a little bit more to the other side of the field in terms of his shift. So they wanted to do uh, a squib onside kick. Essentially, it was you know a design squib kick where if you kick it directly to the FIU on the, on the kickoff formation, the right side, they felt that there was room that you could you know stick it in there. And they put a fast player in uh, starting quarterback Hezekiah Massey's just had him run down there. And he managed to, A, jump up and get the ball away from a tech defender and B, land with one foot in bounds to get possession. So that was just huge. And that led to the Tyrese Chambers uh, uh, TD reception two plays later. So from there, they take that lead into halftime. And then, of course, a back and forth game into uh, the fourth quarter into overtime. But, you know, again, give credit to FIU. They find a way to get their fourth win. And listen, I mean, Joe, we can talk about this as we get into, uh, you know, game previews for next week. But with four games left, FIU has two chances or, or all they need are two to be bowl eligible. And that in itself is just pretty outstanding. It really is. And I think you have a couple of games on there um, with MTSU and uh, shoot. Now I'm forgetting who the other one is, but UTEP, FAU. Yeah, UTEP in particular, I think, is the one that I think based on how they're playing now and the way uh, the momentum clearly tends to be in their favor. And frankly, their their play style right now, I think it that matchup seems favorable to FIU. Um, but yeah, if they can get to a bowl win in this, that's going to be a, a huge accomplishment for the guys that have kind of stuck it out the last uh, few years and be another example of Mike McIntyre finding, you know, kind of instant success and in reviving programs the way he has with some of his previous stops. Yeah, undoubtedly. I mean, Mac talked about it post game, just 
kind of the power of, of positivity, you know, the way that that's, um, you know, been a big thing for him in the program. And uh, I know some people, uh, you know, won't get too deep into it, but some former players uh, were kind of piling on after the losses, after the UTSA loss about, you know, not necessarily liking some of his commentary, but I, I, it's a thing where I think you got to stay the course, you know, and Mike McIntyre's come mm-hmm. in and said, Hey, you know, these kids have been beat down enough over the past two and a half years. Why not come in and just try to, you know, really impart a, a positive atmosphere. And I think that's rubbing off on the players and it's showing. So it's given them the confidence with this young team. And uh, for a team that has so many underclassmen, their best football is only ahead of them, not just in terms of next year, but the rest of this year with each game and each snap, they really are growing. So we'll see how they close on the stretch. That's going to be interesting to watch for sure. Uh, you know, for now, we'll probably come back to FIU um, at different points throughout the show. But for now, let's let's talk about a really surprising result from this past weekend. And that was Charlotte's win over Rice, 56 to 23. I'm so surprised that they put up 50 points on someone just days after firing Will Healy, as we covered extensively on the last episode. Uh, Pete Rosamondo getting the well-deserved Gatorade bath after this one. Eight touchdowns for the offense, 514 yards total for the offense. I think my personal favorite part of this performance was Elijah Spencer's effectiveness. Uh, Three touchdown catches for him, um, you know, was just – the definition of explosive and like the the entire big three really was fantastic in this game. Grant DeBose, Vic Tucker as well. Um, We're just making incredible downfield catches left and right in this one. Um, And shout out to the Charlotte defense as well. Only allowed rice into the red zone once in this game. Meanwhile, Charlotte was seven of seven on their own red zone trips. And which is obviously the most they've had all season. And uh, you know, to have a perfect, percentage in that regard is a a huge accomplishment and hunter said last week that the niners are just playing for pride now and they showed a ton of that in this victory i want to ask you a very random question here and you know please forgive me this (laughs) you know i i am i am good for them um who led the charlotte 49ers in rushing last year do you remember offhand by any chance not off the top of my head no Calvin Camp led Charlotte with 635 yards. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I remember. I remember Hunter saying that last week. Now, okay. You know how many yards Calvin Camp had coming into this week? It was a minuscule number, like like ten or something like that. One carry for two yards. (laughs) Even worse, yeah. So where I'm going with this, guys, is Calvin Camp, eight carries for 80 yards and a touchdown. Shad Bird leads the way with 13 carries for 83 yards. As you talked about, Elijah Spencer really breaks out. You know, Chris Reynolds, 16 and 19 for 254 and and five touchdowns. I'm not going to pin this all on Will Healy. That's not what I'm intending to do here. But, Joe, I'm sure you would agree sometimes – they're just things that happen when you get end up in a situation where you're one in seven and a coach gets dismissed. You are going to have some situations where some guys who aren't seeing playing time before are, are going to get playing time in, in the future. And, and I think it's a fair question to ask. I'm not saying that Calvin camp being, you know, in the witness protection program would have given Charlotte any more wins. I just think it's something, a point that that has to be raised. I even look at a guy like Vic Tucker and, and I'm not going to ever say that, Healy and Tucker weren't weren't square. I mean, you know, Will Healy's been nothing but complimentary of Vic Tucker, but his numbers have dropped off. I mean, is that a byproduct of, you know, Grant DeBose coming up and Elijah Spencer's emergence? Possibly. But Vic Tucker gets three grabs for 59 yards and a touchdown. So all in all, you said being surprised that Charlotte put up 56 points. That was never the surprise with me that this team could score points. 
it, it was a surprise for me that a they didn't fold after going down. I want to say either 14-7 or 17-7. And B, the fact that they held uh, a Rice offense that's been surging to only 23 points. So that was super interesting. So for the future, I mean, I don't think any of us think that Pete Rosamondo is a, is a real candidate as far as getting this job, this job long term. But for the future of Charlotte and whoever is going to be there, because this is a very veteran-laden team, whatever positive momentum, positive energy that they can carry into – uh 2023 and the american's gonna be huge because you look at it they're gonna lose grant debose they're gonna lose vic tucker uh chris reynolds is gonna he's gonna be gone so you know is it building around a guy like elijah spencer you get one of the top receivers in in conference usa now heading to the american is it some of the guys on defense you know they're gonna lose marquise watts but you know they're gonna have some other guys uh, uh returning uh, i'm forgetting the, the linebacker right now the kid who transferred him from south carolina who i believe is banged up for the year but um that's gonna be another key piece for them so it, it, all in all want to see them build that positive momentum but it, in my mind uh I, I don't know if this was necessarily a last stand in that hey you know we're gonna be able to muster together uh, um an excellent performance given all of the the hecticness and all of the you know this conversation around the head coaching change, or if this is really indicative of what this team could be, we'll see, but it is interesting. And as Hunter noted, club lit was open one last time. So Trexler Ivy, the reserve quarterback did have the sign. So club lit uh, did make an appearance in rice stadium. Uh, I guess, you know, really quick, Joe, to flip it. Mm -hmm. uh, Cause don't want to just focus too heavily on rice. I mean, on Charlotte for rice, disappointing, you know, an opportunity to go five and three for the first time in a long time, three and one in conference and to put yourself one win away from a bowl game somewhere that the Owls have not been in a while. I think that was the disappointing thing overall. I know the folks over at the roost shout out to Matt Bartlett. Uh, they, they did kind of a postmortem were, were very disappointed in. And especially you look at the fact that, you know, you lose to Houston by seven, lose to FAU by three. I don't think anyone thinks rice is 33 points worse than Charlotte, but, yeah, on Saturday they were. Yeah, they were. And, you know, to your point, great day for Brad Rosner, really. Five catches for 105 yards and two touchdowns. You know, that's at 21 yards per catch. So, um, and clearly they had TJ McMahon just kind of working that deep ball as uh, as much as they could to try to, you know, make up for that deficit in the second half. And, and it just wasn't really coming together there. It, McMahon finished 18 of 33 for three touchdowns and an interception. Um yeah, you know, to uh, to the, what I was saying earlier, the fact that they just didn't let Rice really even into the red zone, and they had to rely on those long plays to try to get, you know, to try to get scores, especially in the second half. I mean, it's it's uncharacteristic to your point. I mean, the run game really wasn't quite there in that second half. And I mean, if we look at kind of their drive chart for uh, the second half for Rice, punt, three and out, three and out. Four play drive that ends in a punt, three and out, uh, touchdown, nine play touchdown drive, three and out, and then the end of the game. <laughs> so they like they they had nothing in the second half. Yeah, I mean, and and again, I mean, I don't necessarily want to say that Rice doesn't doesn't have the ability to come back in, in that regard, but I don't think they're built that way, Joe. I, I mean, I think you'd agree. Rice is built to play from ahead. And despite the fact that, yes, they've gotten some success from TJ McMahon, Brad Rosner, Luke McCaffrey, again, they need to play from ahead with those guys putting them in position to close games as opposed to trying to come back from multiple scores down. So, you know, we'll see how Rice closes out. Looking at the rest of their schedule here, they have got – UTEP, Western, UTSA, North Texas. So guess what, Joe? It ain't going to be easy. 
mm-hmm. you know, Western, they got to go to Western, you got to go to North Texas, then they welcome UTSA to Houston and welcome U- UTEP uh, to Houston as well. So very much, it, I don't want to speak anything into existence, but this could be a game that we're looking back at for the Owls and saying, hey, you know, our bowl chances went away because we couldn't take care of business against a, a Charlotte team that was really struggling. I mean, that's a possibility for sure. I mean, you mentioned Western, you know, their uh, their season took a little bit of a hit this weekend. North Texas uh, spoiled their homecoming by a score of 40 to 13 in Bowling Green this past weekend. One of the best performances of Austin Ani's career as he goes 20 of 28 for three touchdowns in this one. And I want to talk about how well the defense played as well. Uh, fantastic day for the North Texas secondary as well. They shut out Western in the second half. And North Texas are now in possession of second place in the league. Uh, sole possession of second place in the league, I should say. Setting themselves up for a rematch with UTSA if they can keep doing what they're doing uh, for these last three games on their schedule. But a lot of mistakes for Western Kentucky. Fumbled punt return. The eight-minute drive in the third quarter that netted no points ended up with a missed field goal. Nine penalties, including three in the fourth quarter, that really just you know killed momentum as they tried to you know get something going to mount something resembling a comeback there, and that that can't happen. But um, you know to to keep the focus on you know North Texas and how well they did. Um, one of the better games we've seen from them, and uh, I believe they had a, a conference defensive player of the week here um, in uh, Wilson and his play for that interception. That was that was a fantastic day for him. Yeah, Joe, absolutely. I mean, in, in my mind, this was a very definitive performance for North Texas as far as, Joe, what have we talked about over the past three, four years? Defensive struggles for North Texas. They go to Western holds a very potent Hilltopper offense of three points. That in itself, certainly an accomplishment. Um, you talk about the defensive performance. Also want to shout out Ridge Tixada, uh, a kid who we certainly will talk about when we talk about postseason awards. He's having a hell of a year in the secondary. But, you know, I, I can't speak enough about Austin Ani's performance. We've talked about him, and I, maybe – I won't say we, maybe I should say me. I've talked about him being a game manager and being if North Texas was going to have success or if they're going to fail, it was going to come down to him. Joe, let me just run this down for you really quick. Also, he's throwing 23 touchdown passes, only nine interceptions this year. Granted, his completion percentage isn't great, but of what he's asked to do on the offense, that's pretty damn outstanding. Because I don't think any of us are, again, maybe I should go me. I didn't have Austinani at you know nearly three to one TD to INT ratio. I had him as a guy. I mean, if you look at his career, it's been one to one, maybe one and a half to one at best. So the fact that they've been able to get that kind of production out of him has been huge. And Brett Vito wrote a really good piece about it. I think it was just published yesterday. We're recording this on Tuesday. So for those of you listening, go back and check uh, the Denton Record Chronicle Monday. Seth Luttrell noted the, the death of the North Texas running game, and that certainly is a, a factor. I mean, you look at all the guys, whether it's, you know, Icaca Ragsdale or uh, Oscar, Oscar Attaway, Isaiah Johnson, A.O. Adehi, a lot of death there in the uh, in the running game. So, in fact, even I believe Isaiah Johnson, I believe maybe bang, maybe uh, um, injured for the rest of the season, the fact that they're still getting this kind of performance from the three backs who they have, and that just sets up Asanani to make the plays that are there. It, Joe, we're, we're going to have to take a real look here at North Texas being in, not necessarily the driver's seat, because obviously that's UTSA, but as being a formidable opponent 
in terms of conference title time. Absolutely. And I mean, it's just going to come down to how well they execute in in those games. I mean, we saw that matchup between North Texas and UTSA a few weeks ago. I mean, it was it was right down to the wire. It literally came down to who had the ball last with with Frank Wilson and, and company kind of executing that game winning drive. But um, yeah, doing all the right things on the North Texas side and just so much talent on that defensive side of the ball and having trouble figuring out who is like the, the most critical piece there. You could probably say KD Davis, but also the entire secondary is just making plays all over the place. Logan Wilson, Ridge Texada, like you mentioned, Deshaun Gaddy's playing fantastic. This defense is a sight to see. Um, and for Western, I just just a disappointing day all around. You know, um, I think it they kind of got into that pattern that I'm noticing where when they get down, they kind of go into panic mode and start you know <laughs> start taking a lot more risks offensively and frankly they're they're just they're not the most experienced team in that regard so mistakes are kind of natural in those situations yeah i mean i don't necessarily know that i would say it's it's not necessarily an experienced thing in my mind joe i just think and i'll I'll pose it to you in the form of a question okay i wonder how many western fans are rightfully so transfixed with what the western offense was last year and just kind of thinking all right because there were times that Western was down, you know, it, it down a score or two last year, that offense turns things on and boom, they're they're gone. So I wonder if that's a factor, if maybe just the expectations uh, are a little bit high. When you look at Austin Reed's numbers, they certainly, while not Bailey Zappies, they bear out well. But I, I just wonder, so I'm asking the former question, Joe, if maybe there's a little bit of recency bias of just thinking like, all right, you're going to turn things on. And with that being said, I uh, still want to ask you that question, but also want to add this to it. Loss in overtime against Indiana by three. Loss against UTSA by three. Loss against Troy is seven. So they've been in games, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry. What was the question? <laughs> Are you saying I drone on and on, Joe, to the point where I, my questions get lost in my soliloquies? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Listen, we're, we're a married couple. You can you can say that. Are you telling me I pontificate? <laughs> or whatever the line is i i I'm sorry. what what is the question it, that's it listen it is a fair observation the, the question is this is there a bit of recency bias i think you talked about the the fact that the offense is necessarily experienced I, I don't know if it's necessarily an experienced thing as much as it is you're so transfixed with what western's offense was last year and there's that expectation of like all right the offense still looks the same we still see points put up on the board Let's go do it. I mean, a little bit. I think that's natural when you have a guy who broke as many records as uh, as as Bailey did. But at the same time, to your point, the execution's just not there in some of these key games. And you know, five and four is not really where they want to be. Um, they're kind of in a position where it's it's obviously it's still possible to get back to the CUSA championship game, but it's looking more and more like that's not going to be the case. And I mean, there's, there's just been a lot of disappointing losses this season, which is, you know, certainly frustrating. I mean, not even just in the close games, but like the way they really weren't able to execute in the second half of this game. Um, you go back to the UTSA game, definitely had a lot of chances to to win that. Couldn't really put it away. Um, you, you lose to Troy in, in heartbreaking fashion to the guy you cut. <laughs> um, well, not cut, but um, didn't give the starting quarterback job to, which, you know, you can argue was probably the right call. But at the same time, it's just a 
bad circumstance. And then the Indiana game, they definitely should have won. Um, that was that was frustrating as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a little bit of recency bias. But at the same time, I mean, it's I recognize that this is a different team with different skill sets and doesn't have the built in chemistry that Zappy and Stearns had <laughs> at, at the same time. And it, Austin reads a completely different play style as well. So, you know, that I so I guess it's a little bit of recency bias. But also, you know, if you're playing in a very similar system under under Helton and a guy who was, you know, the closest thing to a protege that Zach Kitley's had, then I don't know, you you would hope there'd be a little better results than than what there is with a five and four record. Sure. I mean, yeah, those are all, you know, fair points that you make. I, I just am going to say, Joe, that, huh? Uh, what was the question? Well, is the <laughs> same thing like <laughs> just to bring a light moment here. Uh-huh. Did I tell you that I asked Mike McIntyre a Meek Mill and Waka Flocka question a couple weeks ago? <laughs> uh, maybe, but that's funny. That that was basically the same response I got from him. So just figured I'd tell that. <laughs> Do you think you were doing a Fozzie Bear impression? <laughs> there's, there's context to it. I'll, I'll elaborate during the FIE portion. <laughs> All right. With that, then let's move on to FAU and UAB. FAU wins that one 24 to uh, 17. No Dylan Hopkins for the Blazers as he stayed out due to concussion protocol. So we saw Jacob Zeno play in this game. Um, Didn't have an amazing day. Uh, UAB fans definitely a little frustrated with how this team is executing this season, making that known on uh, on social media for sure. Um, Second half of this game for FAU may have been the best second half of football or may have been the best yeah, half of football I've seen from the Owls this season. Uh, Nikosi Perry, um, they really just came out with like a completely different energy in that second half. And I mean, you saw the way that, you know, the offense played, they were taking more risks. The, you know, the, the Brent Deerman play calling style was very clearly on display. They were getting it done in that second half and just taking more shots downfield in it. And it really worked out for them. And the FAU receivers, too, were making these incredible catches in traffic. And that's kind of how they got those uh, those touchdowns in that second half. Uh, just just a great day for that offense in general and great day for the special teams unit as well. We saw um, those two punts they had that landed like right at the one. You know, I think that of, of all things for, from that game, that that definitely got a little bit of social attention. But um, that was fun. That was a fun game to see, you know, kind of the, um, you know, we know there's so much talent and so much uh, passion on this FAU team with the guys that are on this team. And it definitely came through uh, as they, you know, upset a team that they were um, predicted to lose to by, I believe, like there was like a five point spread in this one. Joe, I'm glad you mentioned the special teams because in my mind, that was the difference in this game. Absolutely believe. And this is, you know, not trying to discredit Shad Bird, who ended up winning Conference USA Special Teams Player of the Week. But in my mind, Riley Thompson should have been the Special Teams Player of the Week. Those two drives, Joe, that you talk about, those two punts where they landed directly at the one-yard line, those are things that win you games. You flip the field, UAB wasn't able to get points on either of those drives. I believe they, they, had, they punted on both of those. And you had four inside the 20. That made the difference, especially with a UAB team that – couldn't finish drives because they got 168 something yards from Dwayne McBride. They got yards from Jermaine Brown Jr. And Jacob Zeno didn't necessarily play poorly. Just couldn't close drives. That was the big thing. I mean, to get if you if you told me Zeno was gonna give you over 230 total yards, 
and Dwayne McBride's going to run for a buck 68, Jermaine Brown's going to run for 63. I would have said, all right, that's pretty much a, a recipe for a UAB victory, but they couldn't close drives. And then again, as I mentioned with Riley Thompson, you, you take, you know, two drives in a game and, and you start them at, at the one yard line, you flip the field. Those things are huge. Now to FAU, I'm going to give credit to their defense. There still was a little bit of offensive inconsistency in the early going. There was that drive. I want to say it was the second or third drive of the game that they ended up not being able to get a touchdown when they got inside the UAB five, had to settle for a Morgan Suarez field goal, one that was initially missed. But I believe there was an offsides penalty that, that gave a, a Suarez another shot. A little bit of offensive inconsistency, but they found enough, as you mentioned, in the second half to get to victory. 14 to 25 from the Kosey Perry. At this point, I think you got to kind of expect that that's what it's going to be. Still would want that completion percentage a little bit higher, but at this point in the season, you know, nine games in and year two, uh, I talked about Nikosi Perry looking more comfortable and looking more confident out there uh, early in the year. That's backed off a little bit, not necessarily in terms of the comfort and confidence, but just that resulting in better offensive play. So I'm going to give the credit to the defense. They, now they lost Eddie Williams for the year, and that's going to be a, a, a tough break for them as they try to get back into bowl contention and maybe make a late push for a, a conference title game. Yeah, I guess they, they still can. They got three more games, so in theory they could. But Jalen Wester, you know, 11 tackles, that's a big one. Armani, Eli Adams with nine tackles. Of course, TJ Young. Um, and Evan Anderson, shout out to Evan Anderson, who's built from West Orlando. Just a bit of an inside joke there that uh, my man said, you know, Orlando's not good enough. You have to rip the West side, which uh, if you spent any time in Orlando, you can understand that one. So going to give credit to Todd Orlando's defense. And now for FAU, Joe, uh, I, I was asked this on radio, did my radio spot, weekly radio spot on Tuesdays with the folks. Shout out to Sports Talk 97.7 and Rustin. I know you've been a guest on there as well. And they asked me if they felt that that bought Willie Taggart a little bit of time off the hot seat. The answer is no in my mind because they have failed to be consistent this year. And their next game against is against FIU. And again, we won't project too far ahead. We can talk about that uh, next week because FAU believes on a bye. But they haven't lost to FIU in the Shula Bowl in many years. And if they don't bring that same level of consistency against the Panthers and lose that game, that seat is flaming hot at that point. But all in all, we can save that talk for another week. Good win for the Owls. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think it's I think this win for Willie Taggart was the equivalent of putting putting air in a tire when the engine's gotten when the engines having issues i don't know can you tell i'm not a car guy to your point i i agree that this doesn't necessarily take willie taggart off the hot seat but um especially since you know uab is kind of continuing to continuing to show that they are are not kind of their old selves um this season due to a, a variety of things but uh, namely the, the the penalty issues continuing to have some some struggles in that regard um, I think, yeah, eight penalties for 57 yards in this game. That definitely played a factor. Um, and, you know, I, I believe there was the issue early in the game, too, where FAU tried to kick the field goal uh, and they missed it, but ended up getting another shot because UAB jumped off sides and that, you know, just little things like that were rampant in this game for UAB. So, the focus needs to needs to be there in future games if they want to, you know, continue to kind of do what they should be doing under Brian Vincent, somebody who is, you know, very was, you know, kind of Bill Clark's 
uh, guy for for so long. You know, I know he's got to be disappointed with with how his team's performed so far. So hopefully they can pick it up for their sake. But to to kind of end it on a good note for UAB, Dwayne McBride, still that dude, still top ten, uh, still I believe top of the FBS in rushing yards per carry really making his his case for you know cosa offensive player of the year in my opinion yeah i mean we'll definitely get into that in the midsection but Dwayne mcbride cusa offensive player of the year candidate as we've been taping it was announced uh saw that via evan dudley that he's also uh been added to the semifinal um or let's say semifinal he's added to the maxwell watch list uh so certainly something to keep an eye on as well definitely makes sense given how he's performed this year and then to close out the recap portion of the show, we have MTSU beating UTEP 24 to 13. Eric, you called it with this one. Just when our expectations for MTSU seem to be the lowest, that's when this team tends to do its best work. <laughs> uh, MTSU had Frank Pizant back for this game after all. He had 20 carries for 96 years. Seems like that opened up the passing game to have just a spectacular night. Uh, in El Paso, three touchdowns, no interceptions, 21 to 27 for Chase Cunningham. Uh, and then Jalen Lane had an incredible game as well. Seven catches for 147 yards, including that 75 yard touchdown in the fourth quarter that really put it out of reach and kind of, you know, just really broke uh, UTEP's uh, momentum that they had going uh, to try to stage a comeback there. But uh Really just a bad second half for the Miners all around. Their offensive possessions in the back end ended up being two punts, an interception, a field goal, and then a, a, and a turnover on downs. So obviously gave up a lot of big plays on defense as well, as I, as I just said, with that Jalen Lane score and, and a few other ones in there as well. So it, it was tough to see for, for UTEP as they try to continue to get, uh, get back to a bowl game. But MTSU, not done yet. Definitely a lot of talented playmakers on that team, and they showed it in this one. Joe, I'm going to make this quick because, you know, I feel like some of the things we've talked about with MTSU and UTEP, we've talked about all year. Mm-hmm. UTEP, not designed for Gavin Harrison to throw the ball 35, 40 times a game. Not to say that they weren't able to get some production out of the running game with Deion Hankins, Ronald Watt, but that has to be the guiding force, and they can't do it from behind because inherently, it, when you go down 10 0 in the first quarter, you know, you got to throw the ball a little more than you'd like. B, for MTSU, I don't think it's it's expected that Chase Cunningham is going to go 21 to 27. I liken this to the performance he had against Miami, right, where they they completed something like 14, 15 passes for 300 and something yards. The best version of the MTSU offense is when they're getting some level of production from the run game. As you talk about Frank Pizan, 20 carries for 96 yards. Joe, for years now, I've said on this podcast, they got to get production from the running backs. I think it's too much to ask everything to run through your quarterback. Uh, you know, you, you, yes, Chase Cunningham is a guy who's athletic and can make plays, but you can't have everything run through him. So, and also, if you look at the carry breakdown, Frank Pizant, 20 carries, Darius Bracey, Joe Irvin, only seven carries combined. I'm not saying that that's necessarily the way they need to go, but if you go back and look at years past when they've had that struggle to get production from one running back or a running back, how many times have you seen, you know, 10 carries here, eight carries here, seven carries here, kind of splitting them. Let a guy get in rhythm and go. And Frank Pizant's clearly established as the number one guy when he's healthy. Jalen Lane, 
one of the top receiving talents in CUSA, no surprise there. And then shout out to that middle defense, you know, making plays. I think they had six sacks on, on the day. So, you know, definitely a great performance by them. Teldrick Ross, Joe, I feel like we haven't talked about him enough. He had a really good year last year, even though mm-hmm. some would say he was up and down. Some would say that, you know, the, the stats that he was able to compile were a byproduct of him getting targeted a lot with, of course, Greg Great and Reed Blankenship in that secondary. But he's backed it up this year as well. Uh, been a, a standout, at, you know, as far as tackles, at eight tackles, and also broke up two passes. So, I uh, want to shout out Teltra Cross a little bit. And okay, you know, for both teams now here, Middle Tennessee and UTEP, you got uh, UTEP has three left, Middle has four left. It's going to be interesting to see where these teams fall come bowl season. Yeah. I mean, ditto to everything there. Um, and with Teltra Cross, for sure, I mean, we've, we've talked about him before when we had, when we've had Rick Stock still on the podcast. <laughs> and, um, He's he was playing. Uh, he's playing coming off of some pretty brutal injuries. I believe he had surgery on both his shoulders. Right? I'd have to go back and, and check. You know what the what the notes were on that one. But um, to come back from those kind of injuries and play as well as he is, I mean, immense respect. You know, it's never easy coming off of uh, you know those kind of injuries, especially when so much of your job consists of ramming said shoulders into another human being at full speed. So yeah, no, I I think you actually um. Got that note correct. We can go back and verify it, but I believe Rick Stockstill did say that he had at least one shoulder surgery. Not sure about both, but I know he was coming off a shoulder. So um, very astute observation there. Astute. I'm doing astute things now. You are. You, are, <laughs> you always happen. Oh, thanks, buddy. Um, <laughs> all right. With that, let's bring on an expert in FIU football. You might recognize him from doing this show every week with me. <laughs> but, <laughs> from, from the previous uh, segment. Yeah, you might recognize him from the thousands of hours that we've recorded together over the last five years. But um, yeah. Um, All right. Eric Henry, let's talk FIU football. We mentioned that they're so close to, you know, getting back to a bowl game, two wins away. Uh, Mike McIntyre has to be happy with how his team is is performing. And, you know, real quick, you mentioned kind of some of the the old guard in terms of, you know, FIU football, former players kind of being not you know, just, just not used to someone with that kind of approach given some of the past uh, head coaches in this program. But I don't know. It does. It kind of seem like that's just sort of natural for, um, you know, there's two kinds of coaches in my opinion, ones who are so realistic to the point that it, you know, (laughs) whether or not it's painful, they don't really seem to care or, you know, just those, those kind of leaders that are, are so positive in that, you know, it's definitely beneficial, but it, it can be sickening to somebody who's who's a little bit, uh, you know, used to the other side of things. Oh, that is a good question. Um, here's the thing. So a lot of the former players who have and I don't want to say it's a lot. because I mean, it's been half mm-hmm. a dozen maybe who, who've been vocal and it's the same half a dozen who have been vocal over the past two or three years. So I think their frustration isn't necessarily specific to Mike McIntyre. I think it was just magnified by the different style, right? Um, yeah. I'm just not to say that Butch was a surly guy, but Butch Davis and Mike McIntyre couldn't be polar opposites in terms of, you know, the way they want to go about certain things for the publicly. Um, we're not obviously around them privately, but publicly they're just very different, right? So I don't know. Maybe maybe there is some merit to that but in in mcintyre's defense i mean i and i think this was my frustration joe with some of the commentary is if you want to pull out one tweet which you know i talked about on this podcast that's one thing but i even mentioned in stories uh mike mcintyre talking about hey uh, talking about hey everything starts with us as a coaching staff and i noted early in in fall camp 
he stopped. I want to say it was the second day of camp. He stopped practice halfway through and basically said, hey, you want to be one in 11 again? We can practice like this or we can try and turn things around and compete for a bowl game. So I don't, I don't know. I, I think more than anything else, what I attribute it to Joe is, and this is a much larger discussion, so I'll try to keep it you know, rather uh, brief, but you got a lot of kids, specifically in football and basketball, who when they commit to a school, it's to that coach first and then the school second. So yeah, I do think you have a lot of players, especially those who got there under Ron Turner and then saw the difference they had under Butch Davis, who are extremely loyal to Butch Davis first and then FIU second. And that's fine. My observation slash critique would be those same players need to take, uh, if, if they're being inherently honest, right? If they're acting in good faith, they need to make sure to tweet when the team wins two games as opposed to picking on a loss to a, a UTSA team that's a cream of the crop. So uh, I, I, that's that's my hopefully um, succinct way of, of answering that question. Fairly succinct. Sufficiently succinct, <laughs> you might even say. Um, but, you know, to, to keep it from an X's and O's standpoint, one thing that I think is, uh, you know, maybe a little underappreciated uh, at this point in terms of how FIU is is achieving the success they are um, is the emergence of Rivaldo Fairweather the last few weeks in terms of how well he's playing in this win over Louisiana Tech, six catches for 89 yards and, um, you know, had, had multiple catches that, you know, set up, you know, red zone scores for them. Um, does it seem like his emergence is really helping just with how much attention is being paid to Tyrese Chambers on the other side? Well, it's interesting you mentioned Valdo, Joe, because he's a guy who <laughs> you go back to his true freshman year. He breaks out, you know, has a, a really solid game in a what a truncated year. I want to say it was five games played that year. He, he has a um, gosh, a 30 something yard reception against Liberty to set up a chance to win the game. He has a breakout Shula Bowl. And then they expected last year to kind of be that breakout year where he could be a, a really featured target in the offense. We see Tyrese Chambers step up and be that guy. And then this year, you, you talked about, you know, over the past few weeks, it really was just last week because coming into this, uh, coming into Louisiana Tech game, Rivaldo had what here? Four, five, nine, ten catches combined. He ends up getting Joe six for 89, and five of those were in the fourth quarter slash overtime, four on the final offensive drive of the game. So, you know, you only had one catch entering the fourth quarter. This is what I would say more than anything is about Rivaldo. When you look at him, and here's a little bit of background for our broader conference USA audience. Looks like an NFL tight end. 6'5", 245, athletic, former basketball player, you know, can run like a deer, a, a very gifted athlete. He is someone who only picked up football and we've heard this story many times, right? You know, a big guy who plays tight end, picked up football late in his high school career. I can't remember if it was late in his junior year or in his senior year. But he played over at Boyd Anderson and <clears throat> excuse me, Boyd Anderson over in Broward County uh, and was a defensive end, a kick returner, a running back or a, a tight end, a, a receiver, a tight end. So we're still kind of learning and growing into that tight end position. And I think tight end coach Josh Ergel is someone who's talked about, you know, their, their tagline for their tight ends are hybrids. I'm not saying that Rivaldo has struggled to pick up the blocking concepts, but when you compare him to a guy like Josiah Miaman, who came in from Iowa, naturally had to do more blocking. You think about the Iowa tight ends and what those things are asked to do and played more football. Maybe that gave Miaman a little bit more of a head start in terms of you know earning the snaps at that position. But I do think, to your point, this will be something to build off of. And to your point about Tyrese Chambers, Joe, whether it's Rivaldo, whether it's Chris Mitchell, whether it's Jalen Bracey, 
when Tyrese Chambers is on the field, you heard me talk about the cover one, uh, the, the single high look, single high safety look that Chris Mitchell and, and Grayson James got that allowed them to hook up on the TD. In my mind, that's a direct result of Tyrese. You know, when you got to do single high safety and you kind of kind of shift the direction of your coverage, especially uh, if Grayson's able to look the safety off in that direction. Uh, it was a three by one look. Anyhow, three by three by one, meaning three receivers uh, on one side, one on, on the bottom. Um, yeah, uh, you're going to be able to set up some things for for other players. And Valdo definitely should be a beneficiary of that. This certainly makes sense. Switching gears to the defensive side of the ball um, a little bit. You know, it kind of gets lost amongst all the other, you know, big names. Um, not just on the FIU defense, but in CUSA as a whole. Gaithan Bernadell is having a really solid season for himself. Um, after playing in eight games, has uh, 72 total tackles, which is uh, up there. I believe it's fourth or, fourth or fifth in CUSA um, just in general. But, you know, he, he's got 39 solo tackles, 33 assisted, one and a half sacks, playing really well. So yeah, what do you think of the year that he's having so far? Gaithan Bernadell is a player, Joe, who when you combine these eight games of this year in conjunction with the last four or five games of last year, has been one of the top linebackers in all of Conference USA. I mean, when you had guys like Jamal Gates and others get banged up from last year's team, Gaithan had to step in as a starter. For all intents and purposes, he should have been on the all CUSA freshman team. Just a clerical error there prevented him from getting that nod, but had something like in the high 40s and tackles over like five or six starts. And he's transferred that play over. I I, got to say, Joe, you you spotlighted the fact that he's what third or fourth in the league in tackles. The fact that he's been able to do that in a new scheme, you know, both he and Donovan Manuel. Donovan Manuel was the guy who was an outstanding FCS player uh, in a 3-4 defense. And Donovan is having a great year in in his own right. You know, he's been the guy making more plays behind the line of scrimmage, 67 tackles, seven tackles for loss and a sack. But but Bernadelle, again, you know, it's 72 tackles and and three tackles for loss, one and a half sacks. Just a really good one-two punch for FIU and and to be able to solidify that I think that was a big question coming into the year Joe how would this defense adjust to switching to the three four and specifically those linebackers I think that's why you bring in a guy like Manuel who has experience but then a Bernadelle who you know isn't necessarily your dad's three four linebacker right he's not six four two forty five this isn't uh, the three four defense of you know the 2000s or the 90s right he's a smaller guy uh relatively speaking you know six two 225 who can fly around and make plays. So Gaithan's emergence, a guy who's probably going to be on the verge of getting a hundred tackles. I really hope he is, you know, for those who do have votes, I really hope he's in consideration for, you know, not even just an honorable mention, but maybe an all conference second team spot in my mind. And we'll see how this defense fares down the stretch, because if they can close things out and go to a bowl game and and play solid defense, maybe even we're talking about first team possibly. In our conversations with Mike McIntyre, such a positive guy. Clearly, you know, loves his players very much. Seems to have a very positive relationship with a lot of his past players. We saw him take that trip to uh, San Jose State to celebrate the 10th anniversary of that uh, that really good team they had back in in 2012. 
Um, you know, that being said, you you made the comment earlier in the show about um, you know, him him not really understanding or or having really a frame of reference for, you know, some of the music that FIU has uh notably been playing in the locker room after some of these big wins this year. Uh so, you know, curious if there's been any, you know, conversation surrounding that um or just if he's gotten any fun questions in in, in regards to that aspect of how FIU is, is celebrating their recent success. Yeah, those fun questions have come from me. I know. <laughs> um, you know, regular listeners to this podcast know that Joe and I both are, are music guys. We tend to be on different ends of the spectrum on music, but nevertheless, mm-hmm. both very passionate about music. So here's the, the context behind that. Whenever FIU wins, it, the music, it, you can hear it, especially on the road. It is blaring from the locker room. It's a pretty uh, wide-ranging choice. I will give a shout-out. Uh, I, I, I am told, at least per my source, which – really was Mike McIntyre, uh, that in charge of the music was Katie Basin and Ryan Webb. So I tweeted out following the the last win at Charlotte, the last road win, that they played Pepaz. Are you familiar with Pepaz, Joe, by any chance? Not at all. <laughs> all right. Yeah. See, that, that, that that's uh, the non-South Floridian in you. Uh, <laughs> that, that's like, uh, I, I called it the national song of Miami, but it, it's kind of a, a huge anthem around FIU. I think the soccer team played it a ton after wins. And now, of course, it's kind of uh, FIU's adopted it as a win song. So you've heard that. You've heard a lot of Kodak Black, which is up my alley, even though I didn't ever heard Versatile. And Versatile is a song that if you're going to play Kodak, you need to hear Versatile. But also... You heard Meek Mill, uh, Dreams and Nightmares, which I, I know you're familiar with Meek Mill. And I know you're familiar with Waka Flocka, because, I mean, anyone who went to college during our era, if you didn't walk into a house party and hear Waka Flocka, that, you know, you didn't, you weren't doing college right. So <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I I asked Mike McIntyre, uh, and that question died a, a very lonely and ugly death. Uh, <laughs> I, I asked him uh, if, if um, he was responsible for the Waka Flocka or Meek Mill. And he said, huh? And then I, I asked him the question again. And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to plead the fifth <laughs> and, and walked off. Just kind of clearly showing you had no idea what the hell I was talking about, which is fine. Uh, hey, <laughs> sometimes, you know, Joe, when you cover a team for an entire year, you got to throw off a couple fun questions in there. So they have a great music selection um, post game. And hey, you know, their athletic director came on this podcast and talked about some of his music choices as well. So maybe we'll get some of Scott Carr's taste in there <laughs> as the season goes on. They get a few more wins. <laughs> um all right one last question to fiu if you had to pick one thing that uh, this team this team needs to improve on most what do you think that is everything joe um i know that answer sounds kind of funny but i actually was asked that question on twitter here's why i say it that way they don't do any one thing great and guess what that's okay for a team that's the third youngest in fbs football has the amount of underclassmen they have and the amount of new players they have that's actually fine. You know, I, Joe, I would feel, uh, you know, rather concerned if they were doing everything to the max of their capability and were at four and four, given the amount of young talent on this team. So when you ask me if there's one thing, if I had to pin it down to one, probably running the ball, but we all know running the ball, it's not just a one-way street. It's indicative of the offensive line play. And they've been banged up. You know, they've had multiple offensive linemen. Philip Houston. Uh, a kid who got the start for a veteran and Lindell Hudson Jr. did a hell of a job at right tackle. That was his first real action. You know, um, Julius Pierce, starting center, got banged up last week. Uh, Ming Tong had to come in there and, and play center. So, yeah, I mean, I'm going to say everything because they don't necessarily do anything great. And that's not a slight. That's actually OK for a team that's growing and, and very young. Certainly makes sense. All right. Um, 
You don't you don't want to ask me a personal question, Joe, as we uh you know ask all of our guests. What <laughs> what what else? I'm what do I, just, I, what do I'm I not know kidding. about you at this point? I'm <laughs> given just, given the summer given the conversations we were having off air, I would say we're 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 pretty yeah yeah, yeah intimate. Yeah. We, 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 we can we can move on, Joe. We can move <laughs> okay. on. Okay, okay, all right. Um, another bit of CUSA news to chat about briefly here from the weekend before we get into uh, talking about you know, postseason awards and that sort of thing. Uh, obviously, Liberty joining CUSA in 2023. And yeah. All right. Liberty joining CUSA in 2023. And head coach Hugh Freeze has reportedly agreed to an eight-year contract extension there that would keep him with the Flames through a 2030, pending a buyout that is uh, supposedly friendly to uh, someone with the budget of an SEC team, Big Ten team, etc. Um, so, his new contract going to pay him $40 million fully guaranteed over the course of those eight years, which shakes out to $5 million per year. To and Just for context, um, we put this on the site if you haven't checked it out already, but uh, the next highest paid coach of the current CUSA um, setup is Jeff Trailer at UTSA, who makes on average about $2.8 million a year, given how his uh, current 10-year contract that ends in 2031 is structured. And then, you know, you got Bill Clark, obviously, who's, you know, no longer the coach at UAB, but he was making about $1.5 million. North Texas at Seth, uh, with Seth Luttrell paying him about $1.35 million. So uh, all that to say, and then even... Uh, the the disparity kind of continues from there, goes further down, and even when you look at the uh, other future COSA members, you know you go all the way down to uh, you know Casey Keeler and and some of those folks um, at those places like Sam Houston State, they're making about four hundred thousand a year. And you know to Hugh Freeze's credit, you know and Eric, I'm curious, you know your thoughts on this. Uh, Liberty are seven and one this year, looking they're ranked in the AP poll. 33 and 12 under Hugh Freeze, 3 0 in bowl game. So clearly he's he's found a fit where he can find success. And I would say because his buyout isn't, you know, he has that buyout and he's likely, I, I think anyway, he'll likely be a name that's in the conversation regardless of, you know, past discretions, whatever, for some of these jobs, uh, some of these larger jobs that are going to open up. I think it's interesting that obviously the Flames have the resources, but you're setting the expectation that that's what a coach at Liberty can get paid. <laughs> and while Liberty is doing great right now, for sure, um, if you're going to be if you're going to pay a coach, you know, more than five times the average of the other coaches in that league, you better be playing five times as well. And Hugh Freeze, I think, it can certainly do that against some of the competition that he's going to face in the future COSA with you know, New Mexico State, Jacksonville State, etc. But, you know, who knows if the next person is going to be able to replicate those results once he's gone. So I don't know. That's that's kind of my thought on it. I didn't say there was <laughs> I didn't say there was I'm really just question. messing with you. There. Come on. <laughs> All right. Sam, is he that stiff when it comes to dry humor? OK, uh, here's the deal. Um, no. <laughs> oh, come on now. I'm not I'm not as, I'm not as stiff as that that clip of the sorority girls dancing. You, you showed me I, I, earlier. I, Absolutely not. Absolutely. Not. Um, <laughs> here's here's the thing. Um, no, first off, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head on a lot of things. Uh, kind of my takeaway is this. I mean, it's no shock that Liberty is playing with house money. Um, I mean, not playing with house money, but, you know, they're playing chess and everyone else is playing checkers in terms of the resources they have. Hugh Freeze has earned that money. Uh, anyone who's been to Liberty's campuses, I have. Uh, I've covered a handful of their games, but I've uh, 
been to the campus when they opened the year against FIU in 2020. It's a beautiful campus, beautiful facilities. William Stadium one instantaneously becomes one of the best amongst a group of five ranks and becomes the best in Conference USA. So, yeah, I mean, the only thing, and I don't necessarily want to say take issue, but it sounds to me as if you're saying that based on the amount of money he's being paid, the results need to match that in comparison to the rest of his CSA counterparts. And I don't necessarily agree with that only because as I kind of intimated, Liberty got the money to do that. You know what I mean? Like they, they have the money to pay Hugh Freeze $5 million a year. Sure, so yeah. it, I, the way I look at it is, and they've certainly shown that if Hugh Freeze is that valuable to your football future and what you're trying to build there at Liberty, um, and I would make the argument that, again, Liberty is going to be sustainable whether or not football is good or not. But we've all seen what a successful football program and what's what a nationally successful football program can be to, you know, in in growing university, a growing community that Lynchburg is. Then he's earned every penny and you got to compensate him accordingly. So it, it, to me, it's almost like you might not. The other CUSA coaches are playing what they're playing in their market, right? And they got to be compensated according to that market. Hugh Freeze is playing in, in relation to what his value is to Liberty and his value is exponentially more to to, to their future growth. I, I want to be em- emphasized. I don't think his, his value to Liberty is that great because Liberty is going to be all right regardless, but his value to their future growth is that much. And in that case, yeah, he, he's worth the $5 million. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the question for me is not is Hugh Freeze worth five million dollars because okay. the the record shows that he's in a position where he's doing very well. The question is if you're setting that expectation with this coach now and then Hugh Freeze leaves eventually. Okay, you know what I'm saying? Sure. Okay, so that actually so I'm, okay. I'm glad you said that. Because that actually was going to be something I was going to raise when you finish that point. Not necessarily in terms of the future coach. I was going to ask you, and I mean, I'll answer my own question, but also ask you, is Hugh Freeze that, is Hugh Freeze that proportionate, uh, that responsible, that much responsible um, for the success of Liberty over the past three, four years? I think he is. I also think there's this guy named Malik Willis who was really, really crucial to that success. He's obviously yeah. doing it this year without him. And Hugh yeah. Freeze is a hell of a football coach. I mean, you can talk about whatever you want in his past and the way things ended at, at a previous stop, but his ability as a football coach is never questioned, right? So that is that is a fair point. And <laughs> I, I'll be honest, I if I were in Liberty's shoes, I'm not saying you're going to lowball the next coach, if there is a next coach, because quite frankly, Joe, if you if you get a chance to cover a game there in Lynchburg, uh, cuddle is not the word I'm looking for, but they've really rallied around Hugh Freeze in a way that I don't think Hugh Freeze would be scrutinized at Liberty for a four and eight year the way that he would be if he were at insert SEC power five school. So I think that's a marriage made in heaven, and I think he should be there for the next 15 years. But if there was another coach coming in, yeah, I do think that's something to keep an eye on. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I'll just add, I, I don't disagree with anything there. I think that with Malik Willis, a fantastic athlete, obviously starting quarterback in the NFL right now, I, I will say that at his previous, at his own previous college stops, wasn't really able to you know live up to his potential and 
was able to live up to his, his college potential liberty. So clearly there's something there that Hugh Freeze is doing right from a development perspective to kind of unlock, you know, the potential of guys like Malik Wills. And even if that's just, you know, letting them run free, like th- there's something to be said about that kind of coaching as well. When you understand like the kind of athletes you have where you can just kind of let them go. I mean, that's what Bobby Petrino did with Lamar Jackson at Louisville. You know what I mean? He was just kind of like, he's just like, I don't want to mess with your game. There's clearly something here. And, I don't know. I, I don't want to ramble too much, but that, that's the only counterpoint I'll say to, to what you what you had there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it's a listen. Like I said, I think he deserves a lot of credit. Um, you know, Malik Willis obviously had uh, had some. I, I mean, I'd say probably not necessarily struggles, but he, he didn't win the job. Uh, was that mm-hmm. Bo Nix, uh, Joe? At Auburn? Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah he won the job. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, all in all. Uh, I think the contract is appropriate and, you know, we'll kind of see how things play out in the future. Fantastic. All right. CUSA postseason awards. Let's talk about it. Um, first, let's let's do offensive player of the year. Um, I'll let you lead the conversation since this topic was your idea, Eric. Who's your thought on offensive player of the year for CUSA? Yeah. And really quick, I'll make a correction. It was uh, Jarrett Stidham uh, just popped into both of our heads there, who was the player that Malik Willis, you know, couldn't be at. But nevertheless, in terms of postseason awards, uh, I, you know, I try not to make it just a quarterback award. I hate the fact that we fall into this rut, right, where, you know, it, it, the quarterback ends up winning the postseason awards. But with that being said, uh, I think there's three names you got to keep an eye on here. Austin Ani, Frank Harris, and then Dwayne McBride. And in my mind, it, it, I'm going to give it to Dwayne McBride. I think Dwayne McBride. Sure, we'll have to see where UAB's record ends up falling at the end of the year. But he, no disrespect to the Blazers, because they're certainly a solid team. And Jermaine Brown Jr. is a solid back. This might be a one or two win team without Dwayne McBride. And it's not to say that those other teams wouldn't fare well without their quarterbacks. But I just think, you know, hey, there's room to get spread the love around offensively. So I'm going to go right now for me. I would say Dwayne McBride, and then, of course, uh, I'd probably go Austin on A2 and Frank Harris 3. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that UAB is in that dire streets. They're not playing very well, but they also have a guy, uh, Jermaine Brown Jr., who, uh, you know, if they didn't have Dwayne McBride, they'd have him. Um, But Dwayne McBride is also my pick for CUSA Defensive Player of the Year. And frankly, I I think that is – he's far and away the best – candidate for that award at the moment 12 rushing touchdowns so far through seven games um keep in mind he is destroying every other back in cusa in terms of production numbers so far this year and he's played in and he's played in seven games when uh pretty much the entire rest of the league has played in eight or nine games already so even with like that smaller body of work the results speak for themselves i mean he's one of the he's he's one of the top running backs in the country right now full stop so it, it's hard to really make an argument for anyone else um in my opinion but uh frank harris playing very well obviously we knew he was going to play well um really brings a lot of you know that senior leadership so composed and we've seen him execute so well in, in late game situations that's kind of the thing I, I love about uh frank harris's game the most uh personally um austinani playing really well as well like you said i, I think that's um I, I think that's that's fair. You know, I, it's it's tough because North Texas's rushing attack is so good too, but they just don't really they don't have a bell cow, right? So you can't really give it to one guy. Uh, Ayo Day and Oscar Attaway kind of neck and neck in terms of production so far, um, and then they, they even have you know other other names in that uh, in that stable that contribute mightily as well. Um, if I got to pick one other guy, uh, 
I mean, I don't know. I guess Austin Reed's kind of a dark horse, but he's he's making way too many mistakes lately for for me to really give him a serious uh, consideration, un- unfortunately. But um, yeah, I think Dwayne McBride's kind of the obvious choice for that award right now. Yeah, and then when you flip on the defensive side of the ball, Joe, yeah. this one's kind of tough. You know, I think KD Davis, by virtue of the fact that he his team has a chance to make the CUSA title game, and he's the leading tackler. You got to give him that. But let's take a strong look at two other guys in my mind. Jaquise Evans, he's, what, fifth or sixth in the league in, in, in tackles, has five and a half sacks, which is right up there in the top five in terms of uh, you know sack output as well. Then got to insert Jadrian Taylor, who is leading the league in sacks with eight. Um, and then last but not least, I mean, do you kind of have to take a look at Ridge Tixada? Uh, Rich Tixada has 14 pass breakups, three interceptions. I know it's hard to make that a a, a, D, a, a secondary award, you know, mm-hmm. but I think you got to take a look at Rich Tixada in my mind. But those would be the three there. And if I had to pick one, I'll take the safe pick and go with KD Davis. Yeah, KD is is definitely the the safe pick. And frankly, his production this year has been really great. Um, hang on, let me. I know I have. I know I had a tweet about it because I was very curious about this uh, a few months ago. So the most recent defensive back to win CUSA Defensive Player of the Year, Eric, was UCF's Kamal Ishmael all the way back in 2012. So it is not common at all for defensive backs to win this award for for whatever reason. But yeah, Rich Sixada is playing really well. Um, and again, I think it because defensive secondaries are such a group effort, I think that makes it difficult to really have one guy like um, stand out so heavily. <laughs> you know what I mean? At the college level anyway. Um, I, I think it, it takes a really kind of like special performance to really set yourself apart there. Um, so I, I think that's that's kind of why it's tough to, to pick a defensive back for this award. But to your point. Uh, Rich Texada playing really well, as is Deshaun Gaddy, as is uh, as are a few other of those guys in that North Texas secondary. But yeah, Katie Davis, um, that's probably the guy that that I was going to pick for this. Uh, Fifty two solo tackles, thirty eight assisted tackles, which uh, gives him about ninety total. Um, and yeah, I mean, <laughs> Jadrian Jadrian Taylor, man, like anytime you're averaging like a sack a game in college, like that's that's phenomenal it, it really is I, I wish it was a more exciting conversation than that but frankly it seems like katie davis uh kind of running away with that one really yeah joe i mean it's it's funny you mentioned that i did know that kamal ishmael was the last defensive back of course you know that's when i was in college at ucf so i did of course know that. you did yeah of course you did ucf grad <laughs> that's when i was in college at ucf so i did know that but uh it, it's interesting you know you can look at some guys like amik roberts and others who might have been mm. candidates to be a defensive back to win that award but yeah i think that's a safe choice and then you know finishing up with going with head coach before we get into uh preview in week 10 yep I, i'm on the record of saying look if FIU gets to six, Mike McIntyre should win that award. I, 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 this may be a bit of a hot take in relation to the expectations. And I know it's probably a little unfair to penalize UTSA because of the fact that they have great expectations, right? But in relation to the expectations, I think Mike McIntyre is doing more than, say, Jeff Trailer should they win out. Um, and that's going to be a very controversial take if the UTSA does indeed win out and you know win the conference. If North Texas wins out and wins the conference, or not even win out, but if the North Texas wins the conference, then I would go with Seth Luttrell. But if things hold and UTSA wins, 
my choice would be Mac Mike be would be Mike McIntyre contingent upon uh not even a I wouldn't say a bowl game, I'll say a fifth win. Yeah. I think with UTSA, to your point, we all like they were pretty much everybody's pick to win the conference again this year. And I believe specifically, I think I said when we were previewing <coughs> I think I said when we were previewing this season. It would not shock me at all to see UTSA finish the season with double-digit wins again. So if they end up accomplishing that, that is, you know, that's just meeting expectations for Jeff Trailer, which is great. That's where the program is. That's fantastic that that's where the program is. But if you're talking about a coach who has exceeded expectations in uh, pretty much every way. And granted, there's still three games left, so I don't want to, you know, put the crown before, you know, the, the season's over. But Mike McIntyre at, at FIU, if he can get this team to a bowl, given where this roster was um, back in, you know, December of 2021, thereabouts, that'd be a monumental achievement. Um, I don't know that I would go Seth Luttrell. Not that their body of work hasn't been, hasn't been fantastic. Uh, Personally, I think, I mean, if, if there was an assistant of the year award, you'd absolutely give it to Phil Bennett so far. I mean, he's crushing it with that North Texas defense and, and coordinating that aspect of things. Um, but I think because people love Jeff Trailer so much, deservedly so, I, I think, you know, it's never going to be out of the realm of possibility that he wins that award, especially if UTSA repeats. Um, but... I mean, if you just look at everybody else's body of work, I mean, obviously Charlotte, like that situation is what it is. Uh, UTEP playing okay. I mean, just on the verge of maybe meeting expectations of getting to a bowl game, depending on how the next few weeks go. Rice, same thing. Western, I would say underperforming so far. MTSU, I mean, kind of doing what they've they've been doing, kind of middling, at, you know, <laughs> Louisiana Tech. About what we thought. We knew, you know, Sonny Cumbie was was going to have kind of a year zero situation on his hands at Louisiana Tech to some degree. Um, and then UAB's, you know, kind of underperforming, unfortunately, under under the interim coach, Brian Vincent. So, um, yeah, I think your argument totally makes sense for Mike McIntyre as head coach of the year if if they end up finishing as a, a six and six team here. All right, let's get into previews for week 10. Starting on Thursday night, we got Rice and UTEP in Houston on CBS Sports Network. Rice minus three and a half heading into this game. It's going to be interesting to me if Rice's offense can kind of pick it up. We've seen TJ McMahon start struggling a little bit. He's got 11 interceptions on the year. Um, and frankly, it, the home field advantage doesn't really seem to make too much of a difference for Rice. Um, for UTEP, it's got to come back to establishing momentum early and to the point that you keep making, Eric, you can't let Gavin Hardison get into a, a situation where he's throwing, you know, 30, 40 times a game. That offense is not meant to work like that. So if UTEP's run game can get going here, then I'm going to go ahead and pick UTEP for the upset on Thursday night. Yeah. So I will concur there. And really quick for our listeners, if it sounds as if I am trapped in a closet like a disgraced R&B singer, it's because I am because the landscapers outside my place just refuse to stop. So hopefully if you, if you sound like I'm, I'm in a, a echo chamber, that is why. Um, yeah, I, I am also taking UTEP. Uh, I, I think coming into this year, you know, I would have taken UTEP to be the better team. And now obviously we're, what, 10, 11 weeks into the season, and we've seen how the schedule's played out. But 
uh, I, as I said earlier, it's going to be a tough task for Rice to find their way to six. And I think UTEP still has something very much that they're trying to play for. So give me the minors. And moving into the Saturday games at noon, CBS Sports Network, Charlotte hosting Western Kentucky tops minus 16 and a half. What's going to be interesting here is can Western's defense have a better day than they did against North Texas's passing offense, especially with a quarterback uh, it's it's riding some uh, you know some good momentum with Chris Reynolds and obviously the those three receivers that Charlotte has are you know immensely talented. Um, so that's going to be the big thing that I'm watching here. I'm surprised that they're favored by three touchdowns. Uh, to some degree, I thought that line would move a little bit after this Rice game, but you know I'm going to go ahead and pick Western Kentucky. I, I think usually they they tend to play well coming off of losses. They they've had trouble. Uh, string together, you know, consecutive victories this year, it would seem. But um, with the exception of like beating MTSU and then beating UAB. But uh, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to pick Western Kentucky here. I think they'll get back into a little bit of a rhythm. And uh, that being said, I'm f- really curious to see how Charlotte follows up that spectacular game they had against Rice. Joe, I'm actually not surprised at the line on this game because Charlotte hasn't really shown us anything. Yeah, they mustered up a, while albeit a very good offensive performance and a solid defensive performance against Rice, it still was only a a one-game sample size, whereas Western Kentucky definitely going to look to rebound from last week. I think they have a lot to play for as well. And the thing that I'll be keeping my eye on is to see how many people come back to Jerry Richardson Stadium after the last time we saw the Niner faithful? They were chanting for Will Healy's job. Well, they got it. So it's going to be interesting to see how that happens and you know how that plays out against a Western offense that's very potent. But give me Western Kentucky. And then uh, Louisiana Tech hosting Middle Tennessee on ESPN Plus, MTSU minus two and a half. Um, this one's interesting because we've seen Louisiana tech, you know, continue to kind of have issues with quarterback injuries and thus kind of turning to the run game to, to make things happen. How that strategy matches up against MTSU's front seven and how they've been playing defensively is going to be a point to watch in this one. Uh, that being said, with MTSU, I think if they continue to do what they started doing against UTEP and have done in uh, you know, their victories this year where they established the run game with Pizant, open up those, uh, those big plays downfield, then they're going to be fine. So I'm going to pick Middle Tennessee, um, but they've, they've got to start <laughs> uh, you know, building some, some consistency down the stretch here if they want to you – know, live up to their potential. I am really torn on this one because I had a chance to see Louisiana Tech play in person last week and was really impressed with the job that Sonny Cumbie's doing. And we've seen Louisiana Tech play some teams pretty tough in this year, Middle Tennessee. Joe, how many teams in this conference have been inconsistent up and down week to week? Middle Tennessee, certainly no exception. All of them, literally all of them except UTSA. Exactly. So with that being said, I'm torn, but I am going to take Middle Tennessee because Again, if they're going to have a shot at a bowl game, they got to string together back-to-back wins. They need this one. And we'll have to see what the quarterback situation is there, whether it's going to be Parker McNeil or Landry Liddy. Will there be Griffin Bear as well? Uh, we know that Tyler Grubbs is out for the rest of the year. So obviously some you know injury concerns for Louisiana Tech, but I will take the Blue Raiders. That's a huge loss. Tyler Grubbs is so good. All right, we have UT- UAB hosting UTSA at 3.30 Eastern. Um 
on Stadium, UTSA minus one. Um, surprised a little bit that UTSA is only favored by one. I feel like I can pick them pretty confidently given what UAB's done uh, the last couple of weeks. Um, I, I feel like obviously stopping Dwayne McBride is obviously the, the priority for UTSA's defense. Um, that being said, they obviously can't let those downfield plays um, that UAB has been able to do so well. Um, with the play action, having Trey Shopshire and company open downfield. Um, I feel like a broken record saying that week in, week out, but it keeps working for them. Um, and we'll see if Dylan Hopkins is ready to come back as well. He's clearly a, you know, a better quarterback than Jacob Zeno. I don't think that's a stretch in saying that. I don't think it's a surprise in saying that. So if they get him back, then that's going to be you know, uh, a big, big win for them. Um, and it's going to be uh, curious to see what they can do in, in a rematch of a game last year that was uh, one of the best games of the entire season, for sure, in 2021. I don't think this one is going to be particularly close. Not saying it's going to be a blowout, but I think UTSA has enough talent. While they are battling some injury concerns of their own, UAB's defense is a little bit you know, uh, banged up, so not the same as it's been in previous years. And, of course, you talked about the quarterback situation. I think this is going to be a, one of those decisive like nine to ten point victories for UTSA. But and, and listen, I think we're also going to find out about UAB. Not that they're you know in quote unquote they're running for the CUSA title game right now. Of course, they could win out and put find themselves there. But I just think this is going to be a true test as to you know kind of what what this team really is. And it's, that's no slight on Brian Vincent and company. They're just not as good as they've been in previous years, despite the fact that they have an all-star running back and Dwayne McBride. So give me Jeff Trailer and the Roadrunners. Then to close things out, at 4 p.m. Eastern, we have North Texas hosting FIU on ESPN Plus. UNT minus 21 in uh, in this home contest for them. Um, I'm going to pick North Texas as well. While I'm I'm very happy with the progression that FIU's made, I think this North Texas defense is going to be a little too much for uh, for Grayson James and company. I, I think we're going to continue to see them kind of build on the momentum that they've that they've continued to build the last couple of weeks with that win over Western Kentucky, etc. Um, so that's where my head's at. Um, and if my big thing for North Texas is going to be, can Austin Ani have another big week like he had against Western Kentucky? You know, obviously we've seen him have these flashes of brilliance. Can he string together two really good performances the way he the way he supposedly can? And because we know he's good, it's just a matter of doing it on a consistent basis. Yeah, Joe, Asanani has exceeded all of my expectations. So I, I, I'm going to give him that. While FIU certainly is surging and they're playing good football, it's been an inspirational story or, you know, a, a, a surprise story, I guess I should say, and, and inspirational as well, given some of the things they face in the season. Yeah, take a look at their wins. Wins over New Mexico State, which does appear to be a little bit better now that the Aggies are playing better football under Jerry Kill, a win, a one-point win over FCS team in Bryant. Now, of course, uh, that was so many weeks ago, as I've talked about this FIU team really growing. Definitely think they're playing better football than they were then. Wins over Charlotte, which ended up being you know the last game of the Will Healy era, and then a win over a first-year team in Louisiana Tech. North Texas, too veteran, too good, too much to play for, especially against an FIU-run defense that has struggled for the better part of five seasons. Now, they've had good performances. I mean, they've had some solid performances this year. I just think it's too tall of a task. And it's listen, it's unfair to uh, attribute you know the previous year's run defense issues to this year's club, which has very few players from previous years before. But 
when you're going against one of the top rushing teams in CUSA, a veteran quarterback in Austin Adi and one of the best defensive players in the league in KD Davis, I think it's too tall of an ask. Uh, just like I said that this FIU team would be easier to be measured where they are against Louisiana Tech and Charlotte. I think you got to take this one off the book and then try to measure the rest of the Mike McIntyre debut campaign against FAU, uh, Middle Tennessee, and UTEP. So give me North Texas. All right. Should be a fun week of CUSA football. Once again, uh, you can follow at underdog dynasty on Twitter for some, uh, you know, recaps, commentary, all that good stuff with regards to those games. And if you want to follow us on Twitter for the same thing at J O E H I O underscore at Eric C Henry underscore. And we'll be back next week to talk more CUSA football. If you're not already subscribed to go ahead and do that on Apple or Spotify, whatever your platform of choice is and uh, leave a review, help us grow a little bit as well. Happy football watching everybody. We'll talk to you very soon.